he has been talking about the uh, new covenant, quoting from Jeremiah 31, showing the greater blessings and promises of the new covenant, and suggesting that when Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant, we already saw, <coughs> I think I'm allergic to something, but we already saw the uh, first covenant then as being old, and as something that would pass away. And uh, that the new covenant, which was a superior thing, uh, would remain. And that's what we have now uh, brought to us in Christ. Uh, so that's where we were, and we're going to continue dealing with some of the details of the old covenant, particularly the tabernacle worship, the sacrificial system, and that sort of thing, heading towards showing the great superiority of Christ's worship system and sacrificial system over the Old Covenant. So, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the, ta yeah, the tables, tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Okay. Um, so, we look at the tabernacle and uh, its arrangement to begin with. Um, in verse 2, we look at what aspect of the tabernacle? Furniture. <clears throat> the furniture in what part? The outer part. The outer part, the holy place. What was the furniture in that? According to this verse. Lampstand, table. The lampstand and the table that had the bread on it. And he mentions the things in it first, and then he gives the name, uh, which was the uh, holy place. Come on in, guys. Right. Hebrews chapter 9, the very beginning. Uh, so he, he, he gives the contents, and then he names it the holy place. Those were uh, things that were before you ever got to the place where God's presence was. Uh, so it's kind of, you'd have to pass through there to come into the presence of God. Now in 3 through 5, we give first the name of the place and then the contents. The name of the place was what? Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. It says behind the second veil. Are there two veils? Was there a veil to enter the temple? Yes. 
You know, the holy place was behind the first veil, so to speak, the, the, the curtain that covered the entrance. The second veil is the veil dividing the holy place and the holy of holies. And uh, then he tells us about the contents of the holy of holies. What was back there? Altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant with stuff in it in a cherubim. And all that makes sense except for one thing. And what's that thing? The altar. The altar of incense. Was it in the Holy of Holies? It was right in front of the veil. So that creates a problem for us. And people have done all kinds of things to try to figure out the answer to that one. Is it possible that the altar of incense was actually in the Holy of Holies? Why not? Didn't Isaiah like go in there and offer incense on it or something? You really tried to, at least, yeah. Only one person could go in at a t- at once a year, the high priest, mm-hmm. and incense was supposed to be burned daily. Yeah, exactly. There was no way you could keep the incense burning on that altar if it was behind that veil because you couldn't go back there. So I think it's not an option to imagine that the Holy of Holies actually uh, had behind that veil in the Holy of Holies the altar of incense. I don't think that's an option. Uh, now there's some other options people come up with, but uh, what's yours? Would you do you understand how you can say that the Holy of Holies has a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and all that? You know the answer, Sarah? You heard me teach this before. I haven't heard you teach this before, but I'm thinking of Revelation and what's going up on the altar of incense with the prayers, and I don't know if that's related or anything, but... Maybe another name for it, or just calling it by something else? You call it what? You're saying the altar... Saying altar of incense, but meaning... Some other thing. Yeah, that's a typical explanation. Uh, some people have taken this as like a golden censer or something that they think may have actually been back in the Holy of Holies. In fact, some of the translations may reflect that. Oh, it's uh, a golden censer. Okay. That's yeah. why I was lost. I was like, yeah, exactly. Some of the translations will say that. I think that's a cop out. I don't think that's really the case. Although that's a really common explanation. That's. I mean, it's really a problem to people when they come across this, and unless you think the Hebrew writer just made a mistake, then you try to come up with some solution. And a typical solution is, let's just translate it differently. Um, And I'm not an expert on all that, but I don't think that's the best explanation. I don't think that's necessary. And I don't think that is the more common use of this term. It would seem kind of odd to talk about some golden spoon as a big thing back there anyway. I'm not sure there was. You know, so it, all that, it seems to me like that's an unnecessary uh, effort to try to, uh, you know, keep the Hebrew writer from making a mistake. I don't think he made a mistake. I think there's a better explanation. Is Anybody it, can look Is it possible that just one of the old manuscripts got copied wrong? Well, it's always possible, but boy, you sure hate to just <laughs> dodge your difficulties with that. I mean, I, I think sometimes that may be the explanation. But I think it's an awfully easy explanation that doesn't make us actually try to understand what's being said. And in this case, again, I don't think it's necessary. That's a possibility, but I don't think it's necessary. Is it that the altar of incense was associated with the Holy of Holies? 
Yeah. I think. Yeah, I probably have said that before. That's what I thought for a while, um, and I wasn't the one who came up with that by any means. But yes, I think he's not saying that the altar of incense was in the holy of holies, but that the holy of holies has this altar of incense. The altar of incense was not really a part of the holy place. It was really a part of the Holy of Holies. Now, it was located in front of the curtain because it had to be located in front of the veil in order for the incense to be burned on it, but it was actually for the Holy of Holies, for God to smell that incense as a sweet savor. The veil was somewhat permeable to where the incense could waft back through the veil into the presence of God. It's like saying... uh, you know that uh, the, uh, the the downtown shop has a sign that reads such and such. You'd say that the, the shop has the sign, even though technically the sign is outside of the shop. But the sign belongs to the shop, doesn't belong to the street. It, it belongs to the shop. So the shop has a sign, even though the sign is physically outside the building that contains the shop. I think also the Holy of Holies has the altar of incense. Even though physically the altar is located outside of the Holy of Holies, it pertains to the Holy of Holies. I think that's the best explanation. I think that's exactly right. The altar of incense was not really a part of the holy place in terms of its its function. It was for the Holy of Holies, uh, but it had to be set right in front of it in order for the priest to offer the incense, and then the incense penetrated and did its job behind the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. What do you think about that? make sense from the actual words. Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, you've got, in verse 2, the tabernacle in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread. Yes. And then you have the tabernacle having an altar and an ark, and in which the ark, there was the jar, the yes. rod, and the yes. tables. The tables? Yes. Well, and the two tables of stone, so to speak, that one's yeah. Mm-hmm. So thought it was a misprint. No, it's like the. I don't know. We use table that way sometimes. So like table of contents or something. That's not a. No, these are tables of the wall. But yeah, I, I think so. It does fit the language. And uh, what I wrote in here is the altar of incense was placed in the holy place, but belonged to the holy holies. That that's what I think is the case. I don't think the Hebrew writer was trying to say anything that he would have thought of as outlandish. You know, I mean, some people thought, well, he just made a mistake. Well, good grief. This would be such an elementary mistake. I mean, why would you ever make a mistake like this? He obviously knows all kinds of details about the law and the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and all of that. And to actually think that the altar of incense belonged in the Holy of Holies, and, you know, physically back there, nobody would have thought that. And that would not have been a mistake anybody would have made to actually think that, that it was in the Holy of Holies, but he really didn't say it was in the Holy of Holies. He, he reflects the fact that it belonged to the Holy of Holies. It was, it was a part of the Holy of Holies located just in front of him. And given his audience, i.e. Hebrews, yes. if he made this kind of a mistake, he'd lose like, all credibility. Yeah, exactly. That would be a colossal blunder in this kind of situation. And it's not going to work. 
you know. So I think clearly he didn't do that. I mean, and and I think this is a perfectly uh, good explanation. I think it it actually helps us think a little bit more about the function of the altar of incense. It makes us realize that this incense was for the presence of God. The incense wasn't for the priest to go in there and be able to smell, you know, while they were doing their work inside there or something like that. It wasn't for that. It was for the Lord. You know, the, the, the candles, you know, they were, they were for the Holy of Holies. Or the Holy Place, rather. They were, they were, you know, they were to give light, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, but the altar of incense, it wasn't really for the Holy Place. It was, it was for the back room. And uh, so you've got then the ark, and uh, really I think the things he says about the ark here are well known uh, about the ark. I don't know that the ark continued to contain those things, and I suppose that there was no ark in the New Testament days, but he's going back to the way this was originally designed. And above the ark was the cherubim that overshadowed the mercy seat. The cherubim were kind of uh, on top of that lid, and so they sort of towered over the, the lid, which was the mercy seat, uh, to the ark. Uh, but he says, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He just sketches that out to sort of then be able to go to the part that he talk, wants to talk more about in 6 through 10, and that is what's actually done in those places. Do you have a comment or question, though, about 1 to 5? All right, 6 to 10. In 6, he speaks of which part? Outer. Yeah. In other words, the holy place, that first room. And uh, how often do the priests go in there? Yeah. This is a daily thing for them. So they're always going into the holy place to do their work. But in 7 through 10, we speak of the second room, the Holy of Holies. Well, what kind of access is there to that room? It's a little more restricted. <laughs> uh, yes, a lot more restricted, really. Uh, in what ways? Who? Only the high priest could go in. Only the high priest. And only once a year. Only once a year. And only with blood. And only with blood. You just can't get in there very easy. <laughs> you know, only one person once a year, uh, one day a year, and only with blood. Uh, why the blood? He offered for himself and for the people's sins. Exactly. Uh, notice the sins committed in the ignorance. Sometimes we think that if you are ignorant, then your sin is not really sin. After all, you didn't know any better. Well, they didn't see it that way. They recognized that the sins committed in ignorance still needed atonement. Um, that's what he did. And uh, this whole system shows something. And 8 and 9, 8 particularly, what does it show? It was really the whole point of Hebrews. Did the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing? Which means what? Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> that you can't get into the 
new while the old is still there, or the outer, or the inner while the outer is still there, sort of. Something I don't know. We can say that better. (laughs) Well, somebody can. It's really saying the same thing we've said over and over again in Hebrews. The way into the holy place is what we're talking about. Right. And he's making that same comparison before that that's all been done away with, that we can be in that holy place, but not through their system or not through their, not through the way it was. Yes, exactly. What you see and the whole way the tabernacle was constructed and the regulations for worship is that man did not have access to the presence of God. You know, it was there was barriers. Physical barriers, legal barriers. You know, you couldn't get in there. You know, while the while the tabernacle still stood, in other words, while the Old Testament system was still in place, you did, have, you did not have access to God. That was a symbol of the barrier of sin, of the distance between man and God because of sin. And so you see that the gifts and sacrifices in verse 9 that are offered don't really perfect the conscience. Um, there's, there's not that same peace with God there's not the ultimate solution for sin. There's not the access. There's distance. There's barriers. There's limitations. There's restrictions. By contrast, in Christ, we have access. And in verse 10, you know, these various regulations and ceremonies really couldn't cleanse the conscience because they were only dealing with external things. There really was no, this was not a system that would really deal with the sin problem, with the barrier that exists between man and God. You know, there were external things that were done to cleanse externally. There was nothing that really could purge the conscience of the guilt of sin in the Old Covenant system. I'll make another point in a minute, but what comments and questions do you have about all that? Okay. (laughs) In verse 8, it says, the way into the holy place, and you can't, has not been destroyed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So, the holy place is... The outer tabernacle, right? I think he means the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Because... Okay. I know. I, yeah, I'm confused there, so... <laughs> yeah, and I may be wrong about that, but I think what he's really saying... I mean, he uses outer tabernacle in 6 to mean the first room. And so I think even though he has used holy place back up in 2 to refer to the outer tabernacle, I think here in 8, the holy place really means the presence of God. And as long as the tabernacle stands, and as long as this system stands, 
you can't really come into God's presence. I really think that's what he's saying. And is this referring, like, I know that the tabernacle and the temple were set up in a similar way in this respect, but is it there a difference between the tabernacle and the temple? The temple was twice as big, and, you know, okay. more permanent and all that, but no, I think they were set up on the same pattern. Okay. So there was not in these things any difference, but he goes back to the original. Okay. He goes back to the tabernacle. But yeah, it was the same pattern. There's some other differences, but I don't think anything that relates to these points. I didn't know if there's a particular reason why he was using the tabernacle metaphor instead of the temple. I think because that is the exact original pattern. We'll go back to the, you know, prototype. (laughs) Even though the temple was a good facsimile. One of the things that I think is interesting about, say, verse 7, is that when it comes to coming into God's presence, God never left man on his own to find his own way. He always gave very specific instructions. It was God's tent. He made the rules. And I think it's a good lesson for us. You don't just come into God's presence the way you want to. You come the way God tells you to, or you don't get there. And you see that even in the Old Covenant and in this system. And that's all I want to say through verse 10. What do you want to say through verse 10? I have a really tangential question, if that's okay. That's fine with us. Tangential? Tangential, off the subject. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that. I didn't know if it was a word. Uh, I think it is. (laughs) Um, If it isn't, it certainly ought to be. (laughs) <laughs> like when we were studying Leviticus in the winter, we talked about how um, it doesn't really talk about intentional sins being forgiven, except maybe on the Day of Atonement. But this here says that the sins, o- the the blood offered in the Holy of Holies during the Day of Atonement was for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So is that ignorance talking about like unintentional sins, or ignorance meaning like they didn't? understand the covenant for the covenant to come? I don't know. Adam's got his hand up. I'll let him answer you. I haven't got it. Well, my thought on that is if you knew that you were guilty before God, you needed to offer a sacrifice then. And here, you're getting ready to go into the presence of God and your requirement is perfection. And that was kind of a that's how I had looked at that, is that the, the, the sins of ignorance were I mean, almost almost like a safety net in, in some sense that you, you would have a, a sacrifice offered for your sin, but you needed, you needed to be perfect to go into the presence of God. And this was, I, I've looked at it as it was, even that little bit of extra to allow you to be in the presence of God. The question might be, though, was there a sacrifice to be offered for intentional sin? I'm not sure there was. I'm not sure there was anything that could be done for intentional sin. 
And it may be that what you've just pointed out, Ryan, is that even on the Day of Atonement, uh, there's really not a procedure for the atonement for intentional sin in the Old Testament. I don't know. So I think what you what you said to Adam is correct. So you're saying there's no forgiveness for intentional sin in the Old Testament? I don't know that I'd say that. I think I'd say there's no sacrifice. I think I'd say there's no sacrifice for intentional sin. Okay. So you're saying there's a difference between sacrifice and forgiveness? But clearly there is forgiveness, right? Because like, what about like David and Bathsheba? Yeah. If that was clearly intentional, he was clearly forgiven. Yeah. But I'm not sure there was a sacrifice for it. Okay. And there was punishment. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't have all the answers by any means. But... Don't tell me that. But it was covered by uh, the scapegoat going out into the wilderness. Could, it, un- could intentional sins be taken out by the scapegoat? Well, I mean, in, in what Ryan pointed out observantly in 9-7 is these were for the sins of people committing in, committed in ignorance and we're talking about the procedure on the Day of Atonement where the scapegoat goes out. How ignorant do you have to be? Just ignorant of the fact that you'll regret it later, maybe? I don't know the answer to that. I'm still kind of lost. <laughs> How can you get forgiveness if not through a sacrifice? And yet, you know, something had to die for forgiveness of sins, for your sins to be forgiven, and Jesus hadn't died yet. I don't understand that. Uh, your last comment threw me. I thought I knew okay, where like, you were going. Okay. We said they sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins to pay atonement to God. Uh-huh. To show that they were, you know, um, if there was no sacrifice for um, the sin they committed knowingly, then how did they get forgiveness if not through sacrifice? Well, what about Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17? Probably saying more than what I know, so don't take this too seriously. <laughs> Sacrifices for the child died. Yeah. I guess I could be called a sacrifice. I don't know. What kind of sacrifice would you offer for adultery and murder? Considering that both were capital crimes. Restitution. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know what what kind of sacrifice it'd be for that. Some of them are pretty, um, I don't know, uh, they're not very specific, like the law of guilt offerings in Leviticus 5 just says, now the person sins, you know. Well, yeah, but when you look at the whole context, actually that, uh, uh, at least I've taken that as pretty specific, actually. Because, I mean, he, he then will specify in the context, you know, the various things. The guilt offer is more when you've, when you've like cheated God or the people out of something, and so along with the offering, you have to pay back restitution. But, you know, shoot, there's 
so much more I want to know about the law. I think that's my one of my biggest biblical weaknesses. So I'm not too helpful on some of that. Anybody else want to shed any light on all of this discussion? Or anything else you want to uh, say or ask about the verse 10? Here's something else that's kind of tangential following Ryan's statement. Um, okay, so the Ark of the Covenant wasn't actually there in New Testament times. So when they went in, they were supposed to sprinkle the blood on the Ark, right? That's correct. So, did they still go in and have the Day of Atonement after yes. they didn't have the Ark? What did they sprinkle the blood on? I don't know. Well, yes. I don't know. Does somebody know the answer to that? They're doing a lot of things differently the New Testament than they should have been from Moses' time. Those are, that's a very good question. I don't have an answer. I think that the altar of incense back then was holding points. Put it on wheels and rolled it backwards. There you go. I don't believe I'd ever heard that as an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet you if you write that in a commentary, <laughs> It would be better than some I've read. <laughs> Difficulties definitely bring out the creativity of commentators. Because <laughs> they, they wouldn't have like made a new one. No, I don't think they made a new one. What happened to the old one? I don't know. In a warehouse. They go to the Yeah, that's right. Indiana Jones has it now. <laughs> you know Jeremiah 3, right? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, I know it's a chapter of Jeremiah, but... Uh, so you know where the ark is? <laughs> no, but if you're going to talk about this, you really need to know Jeremiah 3. Verse 16 and 17. shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations we gather to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. And then so you've got this new Jeremiah's uh, leader announces this new covenant thing that's going to happen. Interesting. And they, after the exile, they weren't the captivity. They weren't walking in the same stubbornness of their evil heart. Interesting. I think at least that passage needs to be considered when you're talking about. Destiny of the earth. All right. Anything else to first ten? Tangentially, or otherwise. <laughs> if you go on two tangents, do you end up back in the beginning? Depends <laughs> <laughs> on the angle of the tangent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I suppose what Megan did was to offer a cotangent. <laughs> 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 
which might have a cosine attached. Uh, <laughs> and, if and if you haven't had trigonometry before, uh, you may not know where we're headed with all this. I'm good with one plus one. As high as I go. Yeah. We studied the book of trigonometry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, 11 to 14. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now that's a lot in those four verses. <laughs> now those are very uh, compact, I guess, or dense. Um, there's a lot of things to think about, especially in terms of the contrast between what Christ has done compared to the system in the Old Covenant. And maybe that would be a good place to begin. Find some contrasts between Christ's system and the Old Testament system in these verses. priesthood. Okay, yeah, although I'm not sure if in those verses the priesthood itself is really mentioned. What about in those verses specifically? The tabernacles. Yeah, Christ, what tabernacle was he in? The greater one. Yeah, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this creation. So what tabernacle was that? one of that creation over there. Yeah. Obviously it was where? Heaven. Heaven, sure. The real place God lived. I mean, that's the uh, original, that's the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, archetype, is that a good word? But it's the, the, the true tabernacle. The, the earthly tabernacle was just sort of a, a, an imitation of that. It was a, a copy of the, the real tabernacle. So Jesus was in the real one, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not in the physical tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle in the old covenant system. All right, what other contrasts do you see? The blood used. Yeah. What blood was used by Christ? And in the old covenant? What other contrasts do you see? He entered once for all. Yes. He entered once for all. How, how often did they enter? Multiple times. Yeah. Every year and, well, really every day. You know, entered the holy place to burn the incense and so forth. And it wasn't for all. Exactly. The fact that they had to keep entering. The once for all means one time for all times. It's actually one word in the original. But that when we translate it as once, it's not strong enough. Because their word, this word meant like once and only once. Once and for all. Once and for all, exactly. That's the idea of that. Uh, and that it's just a really strong word uh, that has to almost be translated with a phrase to give the idea. That's been like that. Oh. To hear the noise? What? Hear the noise? 
coming from? The cold. cold. It's like, why not? It stopped. And he walks over here and it stopped. Fixed it. That is the noise you were telling me about. I didn't hear him. It's sort of like a, it sounds, it's almost like a, you know how a big fly is against the window trying to get out? It's that type of a sound. Uh, so it's probably like, one of those boar bees out. Yeah. There's a wasp nest up there, but we've heard it in my body room in Mindy. Sorry. No problem. <laughs> I thought I wanted to get in on the action here. Well, we got it on, we got it on the tape recorder. So uh, <laughs> and uh, so, it, it just, you know, a, a great contrast for Jesus to be able to present one sacrifice, and that does the trick for good, as opposed to something that has to continually be repeated. Uh, there's some more contrasts. Can you see any? What's cleansed? Yes. The flesh versus the conscience. Exactly. You know, verse uh, 13 and 14, Christ cleanses our conscience, purifies our conscience. The old covenant only could cleanse the flesh. And perhaps there is a contrast between um, the obtaining eternal redemption and these rules and regulations that only have a temporary purpose. Um, but the real emphasis, I think, here is this idea of the finality of Christ's sacrifice. A lot of what he says really goes to deal with that. And uh, if you have to repeat it, it shows it didn't really, it wasn't really adequate or sufficient. What Jesus does will never need to be repeated. Now, there's another point I'm going to make here. Um, in verse 14, when he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God? There is a debate about the phrase, through the eternal spirit. And I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and you can think whatever you want to. Um, I think that this means that Jesus' sacrifice was a spirit sacrifice, not a flesh sacrifice like you'd have to give of dumb animals. Dumb animals didn't have a spirit to give. So Jesus' sacrifice was of his spirit. It was a voluntary conscience, conscious free will sacrifice as opposed to the sacrifice of animals, where their free will, which they didn't have, didn't enter into it. I don't think spirit necessarily needs to be capitalized here. I think it's, he offered through his spirit, a voluntary spiritual sacrifice, not a physical, fleshly, unconscious sacrifice like the dumb animals gave. I think that's a better contrast. And uh, you don't know from the original whether this should be a capital spirit or a small spirit since all the letters in the original manuscripts apparently were capitalized. Comments and questions to verse 14 or disagree? I, I think that does make a lot of sense because in a lot of ways that's, that's almost the most crucial point is that he, he made the decision to do it himself. He was not not led in a harness to the cross. He was he was willingly went, and and I think that a lot of 
that, that's where a lot of that power of that sacrifice comes from, is his his spirit or his attitude uh, of willingly doing that. That, that the animals they, they could never have that comprehension. Yes, I agree. I think that is a huge difference. I mean, that's really the difference between animal sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. The difference is not so much in the, the, the actual material body itself. The difference is in the nature of a human being that can voluntarily offer it and a dumb animal that doesn't have a spirit to be offered. So that's exactly right. Other comments? Fifteen to twenty-two. <clears throat> and for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shade of blood, there is no forgiveness. All right. Um, he's talking about Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. But he mentions in verse 15 that Jesus' death was connected with the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. When God forgave men's sins in the old covenant, what did that forgiveness depend on? Yes. An event that would occur in the future. The sacrifice of Christ. The forgiveness was on the basis of Jesus' coming sacrifice. So his death is the basis for the forgiveness of men's sins, both under the old and new covenant. We are all forgiven the same way through the blood of Christ. I believe it's a correct statement to say that anyone at any time in the world's history who has been forgiven has been forgiven by the blood of Christ. Now, you can go then to the main point he's making here, which is how that Jesus' sacrifice was more than just an offering of atonement. 
it actually inaugurated the covenant. And he makes some really comparisons to help us see that. There is a lot of debate about this, and my margin reflects that. In verse 16 where it says, for where a covenant is, I have a marginal uh, note that that says, or or testament, where a testament is. Now here's the deal on that. When we think of covenant or testament, we think of two different things. What's the difference for us between a covenant and a testament? Covenant is an agreement between two or more people. A testament is like last will and testament. Yes. We usually use more the word will than testament. But in English, those words are identical. They mean the same thing, at least in this context. So, we have the idea of a covenant. We have the idea of a testament or will. In Greek, that was one word. The one, that one word had two different shades of meaning. It could refer to a covenant agreement between two parties, but it could also refer to a will. Now the question is, did the Hebrew writer shift definitions of the meaning of that word? As he spoke in verse 16 and 17, for where a something is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For something is valid only when men are dead, for it's never enforced when the one who made it lives. And you can find vehement affirmations on both sides of that among commentators. Uh, They usually think one or the other, and they think it very strenuously. I suspect the definition does change. I, I think it really makes more sense to say that when you've got a testament, a will the death of the one who made it is necessary for that to come into effect. Now, people will point out on the other side of that that there has to be a death to um, sort of ratify or inaugurate a covenant. That's true. They would sacrifice an animal to solemnize the covenant. But he's not talking about just any death. He's talking about the death of the one who made it. And that was required only for a will. So I really think, although it's a more subtle shift in Greek because you've got the same word, I think he's sort of shifting to a different angle of that word. And I think it would be better to translate 16 and 17, the covenant there as will or testament. And that he's saying that um, when Jesus died, he did more than shed blood that atoned for sin. He also, in his death, um, put into effect this new will, this new covenant that Jeremiah had spoken about. That might have been a little confusing. Do you have any comments or questions through verse 17? Was the, the Greek word for covenant, testament, will agreement, was that a legal term or was it a sort of a religious term? I'm thinking it wasn't either one. I'm thinking it was kind of an ordinary term for an agreement. Uh, 
But you know, I'm not the world's worst person to ask about that because I don't have much knowledge of Greek. So, Tommy or somebody could give you a much more uh, authoritative answer. Hey Gary. Yes. In my Bible, it's got a word focus and it tells you all about this word. Oh, read it. I may not pronounce the word right, but it's, it's diatheke is what it pronounces it. Yeah. The word whatever, whatever. and it says refer either to an agreement or a will or testament. In 9:15 through 20, the author of Hebrews explains why the second covenant has succeeded the first one made at Mount Sinai. The explanation employs an analogy to a will. Thus, the author says the word diatheke, whatever that means, or I don't know what it means, but whatever. That's the word, yeah. Throughout the section, employing the two different meanings of the word, tying them together. Just as the stipulations of a will go into effect when a person dies, so Christ died to imitate, to initiate the new covenant, the covenant that frees us from the bondage to the first covenant. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good statement. That's, that would be what I would say about that. Yeah, Adam. Um, you, you were saying that there was the, the, the connotation that changed, yes. and I didn't see where the connotation changed. We've been talking about a covenant. You know, the agreement God made. <laughs> But I think he shifts in 1617 to it more of a will concept for that word, where the one who makes it dies to institute it. I don't think it's been will all along. I think when we generally speak of the first covenant, the second covenant, we're thinking of the agreement that God makes. But I think here we're looking at it more from the standpoint of it's an agreement more like a will that requires the death of the testator for it to go into effect. You know, the same, the same word is used through verse 15 and 18, but they don't have the notation with them in verses 15 and 18. Because clearly in those verses it means covenant. In our definition of covenant agreement. In my judgment, that's an accurate thing. Only in 16 and 17 is there the question of the shift of meaning to perhaps will, which where, I think is accurate. Where does he bring in the idea then that it's a testament? I mean, does he just say, now you're under a covenant, but whenever there's a testament, there has to be a death. But it's the same word. So it's very subtle for them. But I think he's playing on the idea that some of their diathakes or whatever uh, required the death of the institutor, if it was like a will sort of a thing. I think it makes a difference that it is the same word. He's still arguing, the argument is still that the old covenant is taken away, but we have a new testament. <laughs> is that, so he kind of brings in that idea, is that? I think he's mostly just bringing in the idea that Jesus' death did more than atone for our sins, it brought in a new covenant. But he employs the fact that covenant can mean will also, and, and goes ahead and uses that definition uh, to show Jesus' death was required for that. So he's the mediator of the new covenant, verse 15, as opposed to the old covenant, and then goes on to explain a little, or add a little twist to it, or a little more detail Just shoot. By, by using another uh, thing that they would be familiar with. Yeah, it's just a little different definition for covenant that, that is more the idea of a will and that shows that the death of the person who's making this diatheke is required for it to come into effect. 
which wasn't the case for the first, and it required the blood. That's correct. And he's going to go ahead and make that point that the first covenant also required blood. But the only covenant that required the covenant maker's blood was the second, which was a covenant even in the will sense of the term. Which was something they they used. Yes. Something. Yes. I think they would have been familiar with both senses of the word. I don't know how much they would have sensed that the definition was changing. It is. It does change how you think of things when you employ a word with more than one sense, because you tend to almost merge those senses. Or it doesn't seem as strong when you change it. I, I ought to come up with an example, and I'm not. That might take a, a little longer. If I'm, if I'm understanding what you're saying, would the example be that you know you and I might make some type of a deal, and and we'll live under that as, because I never change it. But if I change it when I die, it's never going to be changed again. And and it was it, when the first covenant, it was not, it was not the deal makers. The deal maker was not his blood. It was not his life. And then with the new covenant, it was his life. Is that? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think we can almost use the word testament both times. I mean, after all, we call the old covenant the Old Testament. Yes. Yes. You're right. Let me see if I can uh, go back through this in a little different way. I'm not sure if I can. I'm not sure if I can do any better than what I've done, which obviously wasn't very good, but... Um, <laughs> well, good. if under the Old Covenant, there were promises in that Old Covenant that something new and better would be coming, and for that covenant in the sense of a will to come into effect, there had to be a death to cause those promises to come into effect. Mm -hmm. And that same death was used to create the new covenant as agreement. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. that's one way since that they're both that the old covenant is a will <coughs> as well as an agreement. Because there are the I'm going to give you something when the new one comes around. I think the new covenant is more a will. I'm not sure if we should say the old covenant was. How is the new covenant will? Well, it's the will that Jesus had to die to inaugurate. Whereas the first was an agreement. Right. Mm -hmm. I think don't overstress the will part even of the new covenant. I think what he's doing here mostly is saying, look, Jesus' death is awesome. It atones for transgressions. But it also, it shows how, how important his death was, that it also inaugurated a new covenant. Now, he's going to use a couple illustrations to help you see the importance of Jesus' death through inaugurating the New Covenant. First is, when you've got a DFAK, you have to have the death of the testator in order for it to come into effect. So Jesus' death brought this DFAK into effect. And secondly, even the first DFAK 
had blood to inaugurate it. You know, Moses sprinkled everything with the blood of the goats and calves and so forth. And that was essential to the inaugurating of the covenant. So based upon the analogy with human DFAKs, and also based on the analogy with the old DFAK, he's going to say that Jesus' death was required, or more, that Jesus' death was the thing that brought the new DFAK into effect. And when you use the same word through there, you barely perceive that you did sort of shift definitions. But, but I don't think we ought to, I think, don't think of the new covenant so much as a will. He's just sort of using that as an analogy to point out the importance of Jesus' death. Primarily, the new covenant, just like the old covenant, is an agreement. It's God's agreement with man. Um, but because that word doubles as the same word that means a, a will, he kind of employs that as an analogy to show that Jesus' death is what it took to get the new covenant off the ground. In, in <laughs> making a covenant, you run a little and you have to have a sacrifice of, of yes. blood. Yes. <clears throat> How many sacrifices of blood do you have to have? In, in I mean, if you're thinking of it as like, how, how many? I guess how many deaths do you have to have? If you have, if you make one agreement, that's one, one death. But if you're making two agreements, then two things have to die. I'm not saying like multiple provisions in a single contract, but like separate agreements. No, probably so. So I'm, I'm thinking, I was thinking, you know, like, Jesus' death was, was like a, he had a dual nature of both man and God, and so both the perfect man and the perfect God were put to death. No? Okay, alright. Alright, I can work with that. It's just a random thought. Um, only half of the noise in the corner is the little, the, the <laughs> half is the stomach growling and the thoughts running around in my head, so... I'm always scared when we get into trying to do anything more than what we know about Jesus' nature, because that's really complicated. But, um, in Genesis 15, whenever God made the covenant agreement with Abram, this was a big thing, and he had him bring some animals, and in verse 10, they cut him in two and laid them opposite each other. And then in verse 17... Uh, God is a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And I think it's possible, this is a pretty common thought, that maybe the idea as to why they, they kind of cut these animals in two and go between the pieces is like saying, we made this agreement between us, and if one of us doesn't fulfill this agreement, may we be cut into pieces like this, these animals. And so that the, the, the killing of the animal, the cutting of the animal in two, is sort of a symbol of the seriousness of the agreement and a symbol of what should happen to anybody who breaks that agreement. That seems reasonable to me, and that might make it even more understandable, the idea of the death of the animal as necessary to sort of ratify this agreement. But in Hebrews 9, the example that he gives is when Moses 
on the day that the law was given, made those sacrifices and sprinkled the blood. Yes. I agree with that. And in that covenant also, what you see is death required to, I don't know, consecrate the covenant. And sprinkling everything to to show the, the I don't know, the... Participation? Participation and... Uh, I don't know, the seriousness of the covenant. I, it may be, I think it still may be the idea of the deaths of the animals is kind of a symbol of what would happen to somebody who breaks the covenant. In but, verse 23, it says, It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I mean, it looks to me like the purpose for the bloodshed in the case of Moses was to... It somehow sanctified those things, and he's also saying that the blood that was used, that cleansed, is what it is the therefore in verse 18, where it was inaugurated with blood. The blood was a cleansing blood. Yes, yes, it was a cleansing blood, but here a cleansing blood to. Um, sanctify and ratify and inaugurate this covenant. And by the same analogy, Jesus' blood purifies and sanctifies and inaugurates the new covenant. I didn't realize this was quite as complicated as it is, but it is kind of complicated. Uh, and I don't know that I've got the best explanations of all of this. Uh, but at the bottom line point that Jesus' blood is the thing required to get the new covenant effect is I think still the main point of this and we're seeing the importance of Jesus sacrifice both earlier in atoning for sins and purging the conscience and in establishing this new agreement between God and man Adam. in verse 22 where he almost says that all things have to be cleansed with blood. And if Hebrews is kind of making this comparison of here's what the old law had, here's what the new law has, and he's saying that the blood of Christ was superior to the blood of, of all the everything that, that was killed under that old covenant. And so then when he gets into verse 23, talking about the cleansing, the cleansing through the blood of Christ is a superior cleansing yes. than, than, than the blood of the bulls and goats. Mm -hmm. Good point. I agree. The word spirit could possibly be used that way in like the covenant. Sometimes it means the life and sometimes it means the soul. And there one verse or particular where he kind of uses it both ways or something to make a point. The spirit... Is that a similar type of... You're saying to... Just as an example of the same word, but, yeah. but making it... Or, or here's a better example. Well, how about this? Uh, spirit and wind were the same word. Right. And so when in John 3 he shifts definitions from spirit to wind, he's still using the same word. 
makes it a lot easier shift, a lot more, I don't know. <clears throat> so could God have made a new covenant with more animal blood? He, he did it the first time. I suppose he could have. wouldn't be better necessarily wouldn't have been as good as this mm-hmm. are you just I'm trying to understand exactly are you talking about like with Abraham and the walking between in that blood and then the blood here with the institution of the law of Moses right in, in Exodus in you know, the fact that God made this covenant inaugurated with the blood of his own son shows how much superior the covenant is. Yeah, I st- I'm not trying to insinuate that that the end result could have been the same. Right. But there could have been a different agreement between God and man. But still, because of the nature of God, animal blood could not pay the price for our sins. That's, I think, exactly right. There would be no covenant that animal blood would have been an adequate atonement for my sins. Uh, we need to get away from the idea, I think, that the old covenant was just a bad one. We talked about that. I talked about that with someone on Sunday. That, you know, there is the... You know, Hebrews does call... Old Covenant, useless, and so forth. But it was not, after it has already said it's it's holy and righteous and so forth, it's not as if it was useless, good for nothing. It was, it had a purpose. It had an intent. And in that regard, it was very useful. But it was never intended to produce ultimate forgiveness. Yes. And in that sense, it was not ultimately useful. Yes. I mean, is that fair? Yes, I think so. What I hear people saying every once in a while, or thinking, haven't heard it in a while, but I suspect in some corners it's still prominent, is like, you know, the old law was just not a good enough law to save you. We needed a better law that had better requirements, better commands, and those laws are safe you. And that really misses the whole point. There was nothing bad about the Old Testament law. It was a fine law as far as law is concerned. But law can't save sinners. And so we needed something that provided atonement for human beings to really forgive their sins. And that was only by God's grace through the blood of Christ. So it's not like, don't think, well, the old law was just not good enough, but we got a new law now, and this, this law will be good enough. It's, it, the whole idea of the new covenant being better is because of Christ's sacrifice. Well, any other questions I can't answer? Well? <laughs> Why the almost in verse 22? I knew someone was going to ask that. You know, a while back I knew what that was. <laughs> I've forgotten. Uh, what is it that was cleansed without the shedding of blood? Was it in Leviticus 5 
the provision for uh, Leviticus 5, 11 for the 13 poor. is the note I've got. I don't know what it is. Okay. <laughs> well, it's the provision for the poor, where if their means were insufficient uh, for the two turtle doves, you could bring an ephah fine flour mm -hmm. for a sin offering. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the very, very poor, they were allowed to just offer flour for a sin offering. Leviticus 5, verse 11 to 13. So I think that's what I think the almost is accepted. Must have been in your Leviticus study yes. that the comment was made. See the mercy of God and his willingness to forgive a cup full of flour for the forgiveness of your soul. Yes. My problem is I can't teach all the books of the Bible often enough to keep them all in my mind as well as they need to be. You know, just if you were teaching all 66 every week or something, or, you know, twice a week, but then again, I'm just not sure there's enough hours in the week, so. But it does help. The more you can go through them, the more you keep them in your mind, the more you can see. And uh, this note has two other passages. Numbers 1646, which is, um, yeah. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, put it in fire from the altar and lay incense on it, then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord, the plague has begun. After they complained about Cordaith and Abiram's uh, mm -hmm. final And then another one at the end, uh, Numbers, Numbers 31, 50, so we have brought as an offering to the Lord what each man found articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. But I don't know if that's useful or not because they said they brought it, not necessarily that God said do it. But anyway. I don't know. Okay. Another random bit of knowledge to add to your stories. Thank you. Other comments and questions through 22? Well, let's at least read 23 to 28. We can make a couple comments about it now and a couple comments in a couple weeks from now. Maybe. 23 to 28. Only the copies of heavenly things are purified in this way. The heavenly things themselves have to be purified by a higher sort of sacrifice than this. It is not as though Christ had entered a man-made sanctuary, which was merely a model of the real one. He entered heaven itself, so that he now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. And he does not have to offer himself again and again, as the high priest goes into the sanctuary year after year with the blood that is not his own. Or else he would have had to suffer over and over again since the world began. As it is, he has made his appearance once and for all, at the end of the last age, to do away with sin by sacrificing himself. Since human beings die only once, after which comes judgment, so Christ, too, having offered himself only once to bear the sin of many, will manifest himself a second time, sin being no more, to those who are waiting for him to bring them salvation. And there's so many things in this, but especially you see the emphasis on the finality of Christ's sacrifice, and that he didn't have to keep offering. One time did it. Just as men die once, uh, so Jesus died once. When he comes back again, it's not going to be to offer sacrifice. 
you know, it'll be for for other purposes. But his his sacrifice was a one time for all way of finally solving the problem of sin. The fact that the animals had to keep being sacrificed proves that their uh, sacrifice didn't really ultimately solve the problem that Jesus' sacrifice did. And that's the emphasis here, really, in this section and even in this whole section. Does that make sense? So why don't we uh, leave that at that, that's a good uh, summary, and then we'll go back to 23 to 28 next time and talk about a few more details of that. And uh, I won't be here next Monday, uh, but I think two weeks from now is okay. So why don't we plan on two weeks from now? Good to be together. Good. good study, even if I didn't have the answers. So.